From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Precious places like monuments in Washington, D.C. and the outer banks of North Carolina are susceptible to rising sea levels. A Boulder scientist researched this for the federal government and says she was pushed out after mentioning human-caused climate change. I stand by the science and the facts, and I am not prepared to stand down and delete things when politics gets dragged into the science. Then a Denver woman was on the road. It was a drive up the mountains to go for a hike. And it dawned on her maybe she could avoid ozone alert days in the city by heading for the hills. We'll check her hypothesis in Colorado Wonders. Plus, it's raining plastic and a new green addition to Pikes Peak. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A scientist from Boulder is suing the Trump administration. Maria Caffrey alleges she lost her job with the National Park Service because she refused to eliminate mentions of human-caused climate change. Caffrey also testified before Congress Thursday about scientific integrity. Uh, She's actually just back from Washington. And welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. Your report about how climate change might affect coastal parks came out in May, and uh, references to human-caused climate change were actually restored, which seems like a victory. So why the lawsuit? (gasps) Yeah, you would think that would be a victory. Unfortunately, after that, I experienced a lot of retaliation in my position. I was forced to take an internship position, so a significant pay cut. Um, And then for the next year, I I had to work on projects that were not really related to my PhD work. And then it finally ended with the National Park Service saying that they didn't have the funds to continue my position, even though after I offered to work as a volunteer and they refused to take me on even as a volunteer for free. In your eyes, it seems that they wanted nothing to do with you. Correct. I was completely washed out. How is it that the references to climate change were then restored? These two things don't seem to sync up. Right. So I was on maternity leave back in early 2018 when I got an email from a colleague telling me that my report was being edited without my permission, without my knowledge, um, and that I should get in contact with my supervisors. I was told it was the associate director of the National Park Service making these edits. So someone who was not a co-author on the report. So I pursued that. And while I was dealing with that, um, I had a reporter, Elizabeth Shogren from Reveal, had reached out to me. She had spoken to me many years prior about the start of the project. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, formerly with NPR and Reveal is the investigative news outlet. Correct. And so... She was simply checking in with me because she knew that the report was overdue. It was meant to be a three-year project starting in 2013, so the report should have been out by now. And so I referred her to the National Park Service, and they sent a rather vague email about the status of it. And I guess that was enough to prompt her to submit Freedom of Information Act requests and Colorado Open Record requests to try and obtain some drafts to see what was going on. And so it sounds like that reporting got the Park Service to make a different decision about changing the words in your 
study. That's right. Yeah. Why don't we dive into it just like a little bit of what you found, a brief synopsis Mm -hmm. of what the report says about these vulnerable national parks? Right. The report says that obviously all of our national parks are vulnerable to climate change in various ways. And so what I found was that the Outer Banks area would be the most vulnerable to sea level rise. Talking about North Carolina. North Carolina, Cape Hatteras, you know, Wright Brothers, all of those. And then I also wanted to flag that there are some areas that you may not even think of as being terribly vulnerable. But Washington, D.C., for example, could be really vulnerable to a storm surge if that ever made its way up the river. Goodness, I think of the tidal basin. Yeah. And so we have so many treasured sites right in there that perhaps aren't being protected enough, that aren't planning for a large storm surge to make its way there. Just some context. Uh, Since 2016, the Trump administration has removed a quarter of all references to climate change from federal websites. Um, That's according to an analysis by the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative. They looked at hundreds of thousands of federal web pages uh, before the Trump administration and after. Looking at your 90-page report and the words human and anthropogenic, which means related to people, uh, only appear about 10 times. The first use of anthropogenic in your report is ongoing changes in relative sea levels and the potential for increasing storm surges due to anthropogenic climate change and other factors present challenges to national park managers. Mm -hmm. And we should add that earlier drafts showed that a Park Service official crossed out the word anthropogenic in five places. Three references to human activities causing climate change also removed. Why do you think the government would find that language objectionable? I think it's part of the Trump administration's agenda to say that humans aren't the cause of climate change because that, by extension, implicates industry. And we would have to start making changes in the way that we are putting out CO2, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Is that just conjecture? Do you have evidence to support that view? So I was called into a meeting with the associate director of the National Park Service where he raised how he was not happy with these terms being included in the report. He said things like, um, if this was included in the report, then he could be replaced in his position, that he would be replaced by someone who would not be as nice to me as he is. Um, There was also the head of the climate change response program in that meeting at that time. And she chimed in and said, and then we lose the climate change response program for the National Park Service. So clearly there was a lot of fear in the room about what that could mean, what kind of punishments they could receive from the Trump administration. The administration has instead chosen words for these websites like energy independence, resilience, and sustainability. What's so bad about those words? Energy independence, that's a potential... Uh, you know, benefit of relying on solar, say, or uh, wind energy. Resilience is certainly what you're talking about when it comes to a place like the Tidal Basin Mm -hmm. and sustainability. Yeah, potentially these, these aren't terrible words as long as you're backing it up with something that's reducing your greenhouse gas emissions so that we can reduce our 
impact on climate change in the future. You think I, that's what's missing from those words? I do. Unfortunately, I think they're just empty words. I want to play you a clip. This is during the hearings on Capitol Hill you were a part of. Uh, here's Congressman Tom McClintock of California, a Republican on the Natural Resources Committee. He said we shouldn't confuse policy and science. Science is fact. Policy is opinion. When we mix the two, we run the risk of politicizing and degrading the science that ought to provide the factual foundations that assures good policymaking. Uh, I think the global warming debate is exhibit A. That's certainly what we saw in the last administration where scientific data was withheld and policy was misrepresented as science. And frankly, I'm very proud that the scientific integrity complaints have nosedived under this administration. What's your response? Well, first of all, I believe my opinion is that these scientific integrity complaints have nosedived because people don't have any faith in the process anymore. They're not going to file a complaint because they know it's not going to get them anywhere. I filed my own scientific integrity complaint and it was rejected. They collected an absolute minimum of information and I feel that the process wasn't carried out correctly. Do you think that this is also a function of the kind of fear you described uh, amongst your bosses at the National Park Service? Yes. And in fact, when I spoke to the scientific integrity officer at the National Park Service, at one point she did express a worry that perhaps if her decisions went against the Trump administration, perhaps she could lose her office too. What exactly are you seeking in this suit? There isn't much that I'm really asking for in this suit. I'm asking for the people that asked for those deletions in my report to receive some kind of disciplinary action for that. And that's about it. I, no, I, mon no money? Oh, yes. There was also some question of money, but we haven't suggested an amount. Considering I was working as an intern for a year, though, obviously the financials have... have change for me too. Money was never really the point of the lawsuit. The point of the lawsuit is to get on the record and show what the Trump administration is doing to scientists and that that's not okay. And so I think it's important that we stand up and we fight back. As part of your research, you developed an interactive website that allowed people to see the threat caused by rising sea levels. And one example is this depiction that showed Washington, D.C. after a hurricane. Uh, the National Mall and a number of buildings appear to be flooded. Is that the kind of like fear-mongering that sets people off? That picture of the mall was actually an internal document that Elizabeth Shogren got through a foyer, and it was something that they did not ask me to share with the public. That is to say, it was government produced? It was produced by me. I am guess I'm a government employee. I was a National Park Service partner. Yeah. Um, but that wasn't going to be part of my report. That was something that was part of an internal webinar series where I was trying to illustrate if we added storm surge on top of sea level rise, how drastic could flooding be in the future? But that was never chosen to be included in the report. Maria Caffrey, climate scientist, are you radioactive now? No. No, I'm, I'm unemployed now. I had to take my daughter out of daycare. This has had a significant impact on my career, on my well-being. 
And so the whole reason I went to Washington, D.C. was to try and protect other scientists out there. We need stronger scientific integrity protections. Do you think that this uh, legal action against the Trump administration, though, makes you harder to employ? Quite possibly. It would make me harder to employ in a federal series, although given the current situation, I'm not sure I would want to be employed in a federal series. But I hope that this lawsuit also illustrates that I have incredible integrity and that I stand by the science and the facts and I am not prepared to stand down and delete things when politics gets dragged into the science. Is there bad climate science, though? Potentially, there is some bad climate science out there. There could be that. But in my case, I was simply making mention of the human causes of climate change in reference to four different sea level rise scenarios. It's basically mentioning your methods. I wasn't even talking about greenhouse gases in any depth. It was simply saying, in order to project what sea level rises will be in the future, it hangs on how much greenhouse gases we produce. So I have these four options, which are standard greenhouse gas scenarios that every scientist uses. So I don't think that's bad science. That's actually quite standard for the science of climate change. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's great talking to you. Climate scientist Maria Caffrey of Boulder filed a whistleblower complaint against the Trump administration last week. That's after her contract with the National Park Service was not renewed because she says she refused to change a report indicating the human connection to rising sea levels. We reached out to the National Park Service about Caffrey's lawsuit but have not gotten a response. We also have a long-standing request in to interview Interior Secretary David Bernhardt. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. The view from the top of Pikes Peak inspired Catherine Lee Bates to write America the Beautiful in the summer of 1893. But if you've ever been to the summit, you know the visitor center hardly matches the grandeur of America's mountain, built in 1963. It's cramped, outdated, and, well, ugly. After years of planning, a new $56 million summit house is under construction. Weather permitting, it will open next summer. Stuart Coppage is with RTA Architects in Colorado Springs. He's the lead architect for the project. Welcome. Thank you. I mentioned some of the project problems with the current visitor center. I understand that there are some structural issues, too. What are they? There are. Uh, when the building was built, they uh, planned on not uh, thawing the per- uh, permafrost by having a layer of gravel between the, the uh, floor of the building and the permafrost. But within a few years, it began to melt the permafrost. And so it had a lot of unequal settling, which they've had to rectify by pulling all that gravel out and using jacks that they change. You know, they crank up the jacks a little bit every year to keep the floor level. Oh, no. So just the building being on that site is melting the permafrost. Exactly. Just the warmth of the building itself. And will you describe what the new building would look like? Sure. Um, well, it'll look a lot different than the existing one, that's for sure. Um, we uh, thought it was very important that it that it kind of took second 
place, if you will, to the peak itself. You can't out-mountain a mountain like Pikes <laughs> Peak. And so really when you get to the top, what you'll see is an entry um, and, a, and a, um, a sloped roof with an entry in it. Most of the building is actually below grade um, and kind of opens out to the south-southeast. Uh, the materials will be precast concrete structurally, but with a stone veneer on it that will obviously stand up well to the elements as well as look good, and then a weathering steel uh, roof and other metal um, that will sort of blend in with the rocks and stuff on the summit. So this idea that it'll complement the aesthetics instead of being such a stark contrast. Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll post some images of the new building at CPR.org. What will visitors find inside? Well, the first thing they'll see when they come through the door, assuming they arrive by car and are up on the on the summit itself, uh, they'll see a grand view off to Mount Rosa, where most people believe uh, Lieutenant Pike climbed uh, Mount Rosa and saw the peak that now bears his name and really didn't think it was climbable at that point. Um, but we'll look down to Mount Rosa and off into the uh, Arkansas River Valley. And of course, the Arkansas River is where Pike was coming up while Lewis and Clark were headed up the Missouri, kind of part of searching out the Louisiana Purchase. And um, so they'll see that, they'll see that great view, and then they'll see stairs that take them in elevators that take them down to the main level of the building where most of the functions are. Wow, so there's this real emphasis on the view. Absolutely. And on the amenities inside, will those be much changed? They will. Right now, it's pretty cramped. Um, there's no interpretive area, no kind of museum function to speak of. And so we'll have a very nice interpretive area um, that talks about the peak, the geography, the people and history and what's going on with the peak today. We'll have a much improved food service area and then also uh, a very nice gift shop. And something kind of tucked away but awfully important is the restrooms. You know, when people get to the top and they've been drinking water to combat altitude sickness, um, they have some business to take care of and, and there's not enough restrooms right now. That's important. I mentioned the $56 million price tag. Where is that money coming from? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, really, no um, tax dollars are going into this project. Um, Pikes Peak America's Mountain is the enterprise that um, has the permit to operate the visitor center. And they actually had saved up a lot of money, and then they're able to bond um, like any other business is able to bond to build a facility or a public agency like a school district could bond to build a facility and then pay it back with their revenue. And then also there's a significant private sector um, giving campaign going on right now. And you mentioned that there are some considerations to building something at this altitude. What are some of the challenges for constructing a building at more than 14,000 feet above sea level? The, the main one is worker safety, um, both just from the altitude and then also storms, lightning. If you've ever been in the high country, when a, when a thunderstorm comes in, it can be pretty terrifying. And so lightning is, a, is an issue, certainly. Uh, the wind that blows all the time and sometimes blows very hard. If you're moving large pieces of precast or something like that, precast concrete, um, you really have to watch the wind. Um, but back to the, the uh, just the ability to work at that altitude, it's a lot different to sit around and, and watch the view or and enjoy the view versus actually doing physical labor. And so GE Johnson, the contractor, has a very strict safety protocol and is really working hard to make sure their folks stay safe. The other thing is just hauling all the pieces up the mountain. You can mm -hmm. only get so large a piece of precast concrete, for example, around the hairpin turns on the highway and, uh, and so much concrete in a concrete, in the drum of a concrete mixer, um, getting up that steep road because those trucks really aren't designed for that. Right. And the new visitor center will also be surprisingly energy efficient given its location. 
After all, temperatures in the winter regularly dip below zero. Wind gusts, like you said, they often reach more than 100 miles an hour. But you're anticipating that the new Summit House will meet standards for something called the Living Building Challenge, and it's been called the Lead on Steroids. What are the, some of the building's green features? I think the the first thing is um, the panels themselves, the precast concrete panels are actually a sandwich panel with about eight inches of of, uh, foam insulation in the middle of them. Um, The fact that the building sets down into the summit versus being exposed up above the summit helps. And then uh, there's obviously a lot of insulation in the roof as well. We also pick up quite a bit of um, solar gain through the large windows. And then the floor will actually have a system that helps circulate uh, fluid throughout the floor and moves water uh, temperature from one place to another. Um, The other thing too is we've really downsized the amount of electricity that the building needs. um, And so that helps a whole lot there. So this building is going to be super insulated. Very much so. I understand that you've lived in Colorado Springs for many years and you've climbed a number of 14ers, Mm -hmm. including Pikes Peak. What does this project mean for you personally? Oh, it's a once in a career opportunity to do a project like this. And for someone that has spent so much time in the high country and hiked up Pikes Peak multiple times, as well as riding the cog and driving up uh, the highway, it's pretty special. And, uh, you know, we were able to assemble an amazing team of people to work on this thing. And I feel a little bit like Wynton Marsalis. You know, my job is not so much to play the instrument anymore as it is to direct the band and and help all the people perform well. So to be able to lead a team like this of incredibly talented, motivated people is special. And then to have folks come up to me on the street, you know, and just say, hey, what's the news on the peak? What's the latest thing going on right there? You know, it's such a public uh, project that uh, it's it's very important and very special to be involved in one like that. And in the minute before we go, is there any little design feature or sort of hidden gem that people should be looking out for? You know, I think there's a couple of things. One, the inside of the building will be beautiful and spacious and comfortable, but two of the things that I think are really important design features are there's an outdoor dining terrace um, that's sheltered from the wind and in the sun. And if you spend any time in Colorado, you realize if you're out of the wind and in the sun, it doesn't matter what the temperature is, it feels pretty comfortable. And people really wanted that. And the other thing is on the north side, we'll have a completely accessible walkway and part of it really hangs over the north side of the mountain and will give people that feeling of, wow, this is really something else. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us again to talk about this mount- this visitor center that could open next summer. Thank you for having me. That's Avery Lill speaking with Stuart Copedge. He's lead architect on the new Pikes Peak Summit House, which is under construction. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with whether you can escape ozone alerts by heading for the hills. I'm Ryan Warner, and you are with CPR News. A lot of folks out there question whether or not you can even get addicted to cannabis. Why would you say marijuana doesn't have addiction potential? This guy is here to tell you that it can happen, and it does happen. I mean, it's, it, it, it obviously does. On the latest episode of On Something, Cannabis Addiction. Addiction is addiction, and stuff can ruin your life. Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's been a string of ozone alerts for Metro Denver and Colorado Springs this summer, and likely more to come. 
We're told not to exercise outside, that people with breathing problems have an especially tough time. But Marna Ayers of Denver wants Colorado Wonders to find out, can you escape these effects by going to the mountains? Well, air quality scientist Gabrielle Fista has the answer. She's with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. And for some context, she explained the conditions that lead to ozone pollution. Sunshine, blue skies, high temperatures, and very little wind. And the second is you need all the emissions. And the emissions, we have plenty of them in the front range from tailpipes. They come from various industries. They come from oil and gas extraction activities. They come when you mow your lawn or when you run your air conditioner. It really is like a cooking process. It's sort of a terrible recipe. Exactly. You just follow the recipe and there is many, many days when unfortunately we are pretty successful with the outcome of that recipe. Now, let's be clear. This is ground-level ozone that uh, traps pollutants. This is not the layer in the atmosphere that actually protects the Earth. Um, So you, Gabrielle, were involved in an expansive six-week data collection project to get a handle on ozone. What did you learn about whether it spreads up and west from the Front Range into the high country? Yes, that was actually five years ago already. Time flies by when you have fun. (laughs) And specifically when we have high ozone days, we have exactly the conditions that I mentioned earlier. We have blue skies, we have very light winds. And when we have conditions like that, you typically develop what we call the upslope flows. This means that early to mid-morning, the winds start blowing from the east to the west, Mm -hmm. which means from the front range, up into the mountains. Now, in the front range, you start emitting all the pollutants, you start producing ozone, now the winds are coming and starting to bring all that pollution up into what we call the pristine area, which suddenly can become a polluted area up there. Is it any better the higher you go? Like, can we just say it's, you know, not as bad as if you're in Lakewood or Golden? Well, you know, that again depends on the exact conditions. Often, actually, and we have observed that in 2014, also during our campaign, we have seen actually days when we reached higher hourly ozone concentrations at sites in the mountains, like at Long's Peak, compared to any of the monitoring sites in the Front Range. Oh, my goodness. Well, this gets to the heart of our questioner's question which is that fleeing to the high country, not necessarily a good way to escape ozone pollution. You know, it all depends on the timing. Like we mentioned, you need time to produce ozone because you need sunlight and that all needs to start cooking. And you also need time to bring it up into the mountains. So that's why the highest ozone concentrations, if you're up in the mountains, you reach them typically late afternoon towards the evening. So if you are smart and you go out and you go on your hike early morning and you are by back, you know, by noon, early afternoon, then you are most likely avoiding this pollution influence. And on top of that, you're avoiding being hit by lightning. (laughs) Uh, But you really shouldn't be driving at all out of the front range if it's an ozone alert day, right? Well, that's the ideal. Yes. Basically, do not contribute to the problem. The problem is 
emissions. Without emissions, you are not creating ozone pollution. That is Gabrielle Fista, a scientist with the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder. And uh, Marna, are you there? I am, yes. Okay, this is our question asker, Marna Ayers. We've just played that segment for her. What do you think? I'm very disappointed. I was hoping that by driving up an elevation, it would be possible to get out of the high concentrations. It would be better maybe to hike in the morning than it would be later in the afternoon. And there won't be a lightning bolt waiting for you. <laughs> yeah, we could avoid that too. With those afternoon thunderstorms. Marta, I'm, I'm curious what prompted you to ask about this. Um, it was a drive up the mountains to go for a hike. And it was a day when, when the signs on the highway were indicating there was already an ozone alert for the day. So it was just the question then, hoping that it would get better with elevation. And so actually it was an early morning, so it might have been actually all right. But I'm glad to know that we now have the option of taking a bus up to the mountains. And so that means not having to drive individual cars. Are you talking about the expansion of Mustang? Yes. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. I wonder if on ozone alert days you change anything about your behavior. I try to, yes. What do you do? Uh, decide to take public transit instead of driving the car. And fortunately, I live in a place where I don't have to worry about mowing the lawn. So that's not an issue. Okay. You know, those electronic signs over the highway are just one of the many things officials are doing to warn people, advise them how they can help. We found a website called Simple Steps Better Air. We'll link to this on our website. And it's got all sorts of tips you know, things I wouldn't necessarily have thought of to combat ozone. Is that, I don't know, is that something you'd even use? Oh, certainly. I would. Pack a lunch or walk to lunch as opposed to driving. This is interesting. Create an errand bag, fill it mm-hmm. with reminders so that you won't forget anything while you're out. And then trying to keep stops to 30 minutes or less. Apparently, if you don't leave your car off too long, on an errand, uh, it runs more efficiently when you turn it back on. Hmm. Okay. I, I guess this is just part of life along the front range, huh? Right. All the ideas will be helpful. That's good. Well, thanks so much for talking to us. Yes, thanks for answering my question. Marna Ayers of Denver, who submitted her question about mountain ozone pollution through Colorado Wonders. It's raining plastic. That's the unsettling title of a recent U.S. geological survey study. The research found tiny plastic particles in a rainbow of colors in 90% of rainwater samples collected on the Front Range. That includes a remote site in the mountains. CPR's Michael Elizabeth Sackis reports. At a community garden in Arvada, plots are in full bloom with flowers, fruits, and veggies. And it's hot, not a cloud in the sky. But what Gregory Weatherby wants is rain. We've been taking samples here off and on and doing different kinds of studies here off and on for well over 20 years. Weatherby stands next to a machine that collects rain in a bucket. Each week, the samples are filtered and tested. Weatherby's project was about nitrogen pollution. Not about microplastics. It was the furthest thing from my mind when we first started this project. Weatherby calls his discovery serendipitous. Usually he sends the rainwater filters off to a lab, but he decided to try something different. I thought, maybe I should look at these under a microscope. And when I did, I was a little shocked by 
the amount of plastic that I saw in them. Chunks of blue, orange, pink. These plastics are invisible to the naked eye, tiny pieces of mostly fiber material. This community garden is close to traffic, parking lots, homes and stores. There's a lot of plastic around here. So what really surprised Weatherby was when he saw microplastic in the rainwater collected at a site 10,000 feet above sea level in Rocky Mountain National Park. Which requires a three and a half mile hike on snowshoes or skis to get into. That made me realize that what we had here was something that was quite significant because the question is, how do those plastics get into that remote area? Weatherby's study doesn't answer that big question, and he doesn't want to speculate. But it makes him think that somehow plastic is transported through the atmosphere. His findings are the first in the U.S., but a similar study out of France this year echoes his results. In a remote part of the Pyrenees Mountains, researchers found microplastics in the rainfall. The lead author told the National Geographic that, quote, microplastic is a new atmospheric pollutant. Weatherby says the plastic could be coming from all sorts of sources, synthetic fibers from our clothing, shreds from tires on the road. When a bag or bottle breaks down, it becomes tiny pieces that spread. Now I can't get out of the car at the supermarket without noticing all the plastic trash on the ground. Plastic is being found everywhere, in the deep ocean, in the stomachs of whales, in the fish that we eat, and in the water we drink. A study by Orb Media found that 94% of tap water samples collected in the United States had micro and nanoplastics in it. Alice Fulmer is with the Water Research Foundation. She says that plastic in rainwater is just one example of the challenges around treating for these tiny man-made materials. It's just that there's such an abundance that even removal of most of them can result in some getting through. Despite this, Fulmer says wastewater treatment centers haven't implemented new technology to try and completely remove the rest. She says since research is relatively new and hasn't established whether these microplastics are actually causing harm to people and the environment, it would be premature to make those changes. And I think that's why we really need to conduct more research. The Water Research Foundation is involved in a project that's looking at ways to remove microplastics from water. But Fulmer thinks we need to look at the bigger picture. We've got to then be having those conversations as a society and think holistically about how to prevent them from entering the environment and limiting exposure. An assistant professor at the University of Denver has some ideas for that. Jack Buffington teaches supply chain management and just released a book called Peak Plastic, The Rise and Fall of Our Synthetic World. Buffington argues it's the supply chain that's created the problem. We can create these materials at such a cheap price. We can throw them away. We can produce them all over the world. We can ship them all over the world. He says plastics weren't designed to be in a circular system, like aluminum cans are, for example. It's easier and more economical to recycle aluminum products than to dig up materials and make them new. And aluminum doesn't downgrade in the recycling process. Buffington says plastic needs to be designed the same way. Problem is, is that how long is it going to take for that to happen? Buffington says the first step in addressing the issue is getting people to understand the scope of the problem, like just how pervasive plastic is in our environment. Gregory Weatherby, the researcher with the USGS, wants to get out the same message. That's why he titled his paper, It's Raining Plastic. It's an emphatic statement about a condition that we believe is something that people should know about. That there's more plastic in the environment than what meets the eye. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News.
Okay, let's further explore microplastics now. They've been called the invisible problem. Katie Christensen spearheads the Microplastics Initiative for the nonprofit Adventure Scientists. Hi, Katie. Hi, Ryan. How are you today? Doing well. You know, the West is known for rivers and lakes that draw people from all over, and you have found microplastics in them. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. We were maybe not that surprised to discover that microplastics were ubiquitous, not just in marine systems where they were originally known to exist, but even in the backcountry and in wilderness areas in Montana, in Colorado, throughout the West, really throughout the whole world. What got you looking into this type of pollution inland? You know, because I have so often associated this with oceans. Yeah, that's a great question. So we were really curious about where microplastics were entering the system. When we first started studying microplastics, it was through this global initiative back in 2013. And at that time, very little was known about microplastics, both the you know consequences of these polluting the environment, where they were coming from, the extent to which they're contaminating our um, ecosystems. So we were studying this issue as a marine issue, which is where most of the science had been at that point as well. Um, But we at Adventure Scientists were based in Bozeman, Montana. And the headwaters of the Gallatin watershed, which is our home watershed, it's our drinking water, takes its place in Yellowstone National Park. It flows through Forest Service lands, through wilderness areas, ultimately through Bozeman, Montana. And we were wondering, how is this river potentially contributing to what we had come to think of as a marine problem? And since we're really well equipped at working with volunteers in the outdoor adventure community, and since Bozeman is full of those kinds of folks, we harnessed this group of people and deployed them into the backcountry in the Gallatin watershed and asked our volunteers to collect one liter water samples that we then analyzed for microplastic pollution. Not surprisingly, you know, rivers flow to the ocean. Gallatin Watershed is the headwaters of what ultimately becomes the Mississippi River. So what we found in the Gallatin Watershed, we know then is making its way downstream ultimately and contributing to our counts in our marine systems. Yeah. What did you find in the Gallatin? Yeah. So we ended up over the two years of our study, we worked with 120 volunteers to collect 774 water samples. 57% of those samples that we collected were contaminated with microplastics. And just to put this in perspective, throughout our global study, we had 73% of our samples containing microplastics. That was much higher in our marine side of that um, data set. In our marine samples, we had 89% were contaminated with microplastics. So comparing that again back to our Gallatin study, this is a headwaters, freshwater ecosystem that runs through wilderness area, and yet still 57% of our samples contained microplastics. We think of plastic pollution oftentimes as maybe a plastic bag or a straw or a plastic fork, um, you know, making its way down some river system or sitting in the environment or something that didn't make its way to the trash can or recycling bin. So with microplastics, it's the same general concept, except these are oftentimes invisible to the unaided eye. They're plastic particles that are less than five millimeters in size, and they oftentimes originate from some larger plastic object. So think of your polar fleece 
this is like the classic example. Okay. It's this, um, you know, large, obviously visible object that is at least partially, if not fully synthetic in its composition. But that plastic fleece over time degrades, whether it's because you're wearing it out backpacking and you rub against a tree and some little pieces of what was this larger fleece come off or you launder it and in the washing machine cycle, um, plastics are shed from that object and you end up with something that's less than five millimeters in size. Oftentimes in the case of microfibers, it's even much smaller, like less than 1.5 millimeters in size. So definitely um, invisible to the unaided eye. And these are harder to capture. They're harder to put into a recycling bin because we don't exactly know that they that they exist, where they yeah. are, how to do that. Okay, so you gave two examples there with the polar fleece. One is mm-hmm. I'm out wearing it and I rub up against a tree and maybe a little of the microfiber goes into the environment. I think the second example was that you wash the polar fleece and it gets into the environment that way. So this isn't being this stuff isn't being filtered out by water plants. Yeah, un- unfortunately, the the current technology in most wastewater treatment facilities is just not adequate huh. to capture all of the microplastics that make their way in there. So, even if they're capturing, let's say, fifty percent, which would be a pretty great number, in your typical laundering cycle, one piece of clothing that's synthetic can discharge hundreds of thousands of pieces of microplastics. So, fifty percent wow. is just not going to cut it. Gosh. <laughs> I guess I feel like I, I just can't win. Like, I, if I care for the environment and I want to go out in it and explore it, I put on my polar fleece because it's cold, and now I'm contributing to plastic pollution. Right. I, I mean, put yourself in the mind of the listener who's just going, <laughs> I, living pollutes, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's me. I'm I totally think about this when I go to bed at night. I'm not somehow, you know, distance from the fact that I am contributing to this problem every time I do a load of laundry. But there are some steps that consumers can take to do something about it. And and granted, this is a much, much bigger issue than really only is possible for one person to tackle. But things just as being, you know, simple as being conscious of what you're consuming and and buying products that are built to last. Studies show that those products that are built to last, that are built more robustly, they don't shed as many microplastics in the washing cycle. Washing your clothes less often is actually a really significant way to reduce yours as an individual's con- contribution to microplastics pollution. But I hear what you're saying, and I, I struggle with that. I, I think there's an opportunity with microplastics unlike some other issues that are affecting us as a global community, because microplastics is not yet a polarizing environmental issue. There's just, you know, mountains of evidence showing the the ubiquity of this problem. And I think it's something that is, uh, it presents a lot of opportunities for people all over the world to get behind. And potentially manufacturers of these products, I gather. I mean, I think of microbeads, which got so much attention a few years ago, that are in cosmetic products, for instance. Right. There, there's there been a real dent made in the microbeads, right? Right. So microbeads are considered primary microplastics. And those are those kinds of microplastics that were produced in the first place to be 
of the micro size. So microbeads, right? When we talk about microfibers, which for what it's worth, over 80% of the microplastics that we found in our Gallatin study were microfibers. So they were fibrous in origin as opposed to microbeads, for example. Okay. Um, Those are considered secondary microplastics. So those are originating from some larger object, like again, that polar fleece. And in that case, it, it, it really is so important that manufacturers of these products are taking seriously um, this issue. And, and I have seen that, especially in the outdoor industry, particularly Patagonia, who was one of our funders. These are organizations who are putting their money where their mouth is. They're doing research, they're developing products, um, and they're really contending with contributing to this problem and how they can lessen that impact. Katie, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Katie Christensen of the Microplastics Initiative. We spoke in September. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The language barrier can be difficult for immigrants to overcome. As part of CPR's series about life in Colorado through the lens of language, CPR's Natalia Navarro visited two classrooms to find out what it's like to learn English here. In a classroom at the Emily Griffith Technical College, a dozen immigrant English students sit around a U-shaped arrangement of desks. They speak in low tones to partners practicing English grammar. The assignment? Suggest an activity that might help your classmates challenge themselves. Speak about your own experiences with that activity using as many past tense verbs as you can. Okay, who will be the bravest two students in class can go first? Winnie Chang Thong of Thailand and her partner avoid eye contact with their instructor so they don't have to go next. Chang Thong is the last to speak. I went, I came to Denver like three months ago and I... And I scared to go out. She starts to cry. I'm lonely. Yeah. And I don't have friends. I mean, only my husband. Her classmates rush to comfort her. You can call us. Yeah. You have my phone number. You yeah, have our Google Voice. Yeah. You can get our phone you number. Can call all, we are all like in similar situations. Yeah. 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 Chang Thong sits in one of the most advanced classes Emily Griffith offers, high-level speaking and listening for immigrants. When our students come here, from the beginning, they really feel foreign. And when they come to class and they're with other students every day, they realize they're having this shared experience that is not theirs alone. That's Sharon McCreary. She taught English language learners for 20 years, and now she's an administrator at Emily Griffith. Students at the school are divided up both by language proficiency level and by background of the student, immigrant or refugee, which is a legal classification made by the UN Refugee Agency. McCreary says motivation often helps immigrants learn English faster than refugees. They understand why they need English, but they have a lot of other things going on that impact their language learning, whether it's trauma or health problems that have been neglected for years or just being overwhelmed at being in a new place when they feel terribly lonely and disoriented. And all of that can make it harder to learn a language. Kim Hosp has been teaching English for 15 years. She says immigrants and refugees have different motivations for learning English. 
The immigrants usually have a really specific goal. They want to learn English to get into a college or a community college or to become a supervisor. And refugees come just to basically learn the, the language to survive. Of course, some refugee students come into Emily Griffith already speaking some English. But most of HOSP's students have been in the U.S. for less than five months. It's very survival-based and work-based because the goal of the class is to get them enough English to get a job so they can start to support themselves. So we do just a lot of practical things, numbers, weather, clothing, basic job interview questions. What are you wearing? Wearing means what The students take turns describing one of their classmates' outfit. White shirt, blue jeans, black sneakers. And another, blue hijab, blue dress, brown sandals. Beatrice Collins from Colombia is a classmate of Winnie Chong Thong in the high-level speaking and listening class this term. I live here for five years, and it's difficult, but every day is one challenge. I ask Collins if she feels people in Denver accept English learners. Sometimes yes, sometimes no, but uh, no worrying for me because I am concentrated in my goals. My goal is one day uh, can uh, speak well, English, I'm fluent English. McCreary says she thinks Colorado has a special empathy for immigrants. We have a lot of transplants to our state, and even though they might be from this culture originally, they still have that feeling of disorientation, maybe a little loneliness. I used to tell my students, you're in Colorado, everybody loves to talk about the weather. So if you can learn to talk about that, you can always have a conversation. I'm Natalia Navarro, CPR News. And you can find other stories in CPR series on languages in Colorado, like how to pronounce places like Buena Vista and the role sign language interpreters play at concerts, at Red Rocks and other music venues at CPR.org. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.